Hi, you're listening to Elder Law Issues. This is Robert Fleming, one of the partners in the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC, and my other presenter, co-host, compatriot, is Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, and she's here in the room to talk about the ABLE Act. We've mentioned the ABLE Act several times in our podcast, Elizabeth, but I don't think we've ever really focused on what the ABLE Act is and, and what it does. So first of all, ABLE, Achieving a Better Life Experience is what ABLE stands for. The ABLE Act has been around for, for a, almost a decade now, um, although the actual ABLE Act programs are younger than that. They're only about five or six years old. Uh, and I thought maybe it would be beneficial to talk about when you can use an ABLE Act account and what you can use it for. So can we start with when it's an available option for people who can have an ABLE Act account? Well, Robert, that's a great question. Right now, if somebody has been determined to be disabled before the age of 26, um, the person would presumably have been identified in the Social Security system as having a disability, and the ABLE Act accounts are available to those people. Each person who has a disability can have one ABLE Act account. And the idea behind these ABLE accounts, among other things, was to provide some independence and autonomy to somebody with a disability so that that person could have a savings type account that money could be kept in to use for expenses related to that person's disability. And now when we talk about what is a qualified disability expense, that it is anything from perhaps dog food to help pay for the food that your wonderful CNI dog needs um, to something that might be a uh, possibly a supplement that somebody might take with their regular meals, or even something like a new wheelchair. Um, And so the idea behind these accounts, as I see it, is to allow somebody with a disability to manage some of their own money and then spend it in ways that helps provide them with a strong quality of life. So the the 26-year-old requirement, that's so confusing to people. We need to be very clear that you have to have been disabled before age 26 but you can have your ABLE Act account regardless of your age. So if you are 80 and you were disabled before age 26, you are eligible to set up an ABLE Act account. Though it's a little bit hard to think of when an 80-year-old would be a, a good candidate for an ABLE Act account. But, but the, the age at the inception of the account or, or growing past age 26 is not important. And that age 26 might change even... Uh, Even in the divided Congress, there has been a move, a concerted effort to raise that to 46, for instance, or maybe it'll end up at 42 or some other age. Um, And as you said, Elizabeth, if you were receiving Social Security Disability or SSI before your 26th birthday, you clearly were disabled. But that's not the only way to establish it. If you were disabled and not receiving benefits, you still qualify. And this is something that confuses people. The way that the system determines that you were disabled before age 26 is that you tell them that you were disabled before age 26. And there's not a lot of double checking that. So you don't have to have you know, volumes of school records and doctor's reports. You just have to have the bare assertion and some supporting information if you're ever questioned about the age 26 onset. 
I, you know, that age 26 onset really creates a, a big problem because most developmentally disabled adults were clearly disabled before age 26 and many mentally ill adults, the other big category of people who would qualify, don't have an onset of illness before age 26. Although pretty often when they get diagnosed at 28, the family can say, oh yeah, clearly he was very profoundly mentally ill before and we just were in denial. We we were hoping that it would be a phase and that, and that it would go away. Um, that kind of person can qualify for an ABLE Act account. And Robert, I think that when we think about how these can be used, one of the important things for folks to know is is that there are limits on what you can, how much money you can put in annually to an ABLE Act account. Um, and you can put in money, Robert, to an ABLE Act account on somebody else's behalf. For instance, if you wanted to make a gift to an ABLE account. But you have to remember that you cannot put more than this year, it's been 16000 uh, The year before, it was 15000 And this upcoming year, I guess it will be 17000 Is that correct? Correct. January 1st, 2023, it's scheduled to increase to $17,000 a year. So if you wanted to put a fair amount of money in an ABLE Act account in these closing weeks of 2022, you could put in $16,000 now. And on January 3rd, just to give it a couple days for the banks to reopen, uh, you could put in another $17,000. So you could get $33,000 in in the next few weeks if that was something you wanted to do. And Robert, it's important for people to know, though, if the owner of the ABLE Act account, if the, the person who um, is holding the money, who is oftentimes the beneficiary, you can open your own ABLE account, which is great, um, dies, that the money in that account that remains is going to be used to pay back the entity or entities uh, in one state or the states in which the beneficiary may have received government assistance. And so what that means for some people is they say, well, isn't this a savings account? And we say, yes, but remember, there is a requirement that the funds in that account be paid back upon somebody's death. This is another area of great confusion. So first of all, the only government program that gets paid back is Medicaid. If you happen to not have gotten any Medicaid benefits, then there's no payback requirement. That's one thing. And another is that in some states, because states are not clearly required to insist on a payback, some states have said they won't assert a payback. Well, if you live in Arizona, Arizona is not one of those states. And if you have your ABLE Act account in a state that does not require a payback, they still require a payback for your Arizona benefits. So. Um, so at least currently, Arizonans don't get the benefit of that uh, that no payback movement. Movement may be too strong a word. There are only about a, a two or three states that have, have decided not to require a payback so far. Uh, I guess it's more than two or three, but it's a handful. Um, and some of the other confusions about the ABLE Act account are what happens if you use the money for something that is not clearly a qualified disability expense. Well, as you said, Elizabeth, it's clear that the ABLE Act accounts were intended to allow you to pay for the wheelchair, the dog food. And and by the way, it doesn't have to be for your C&I dog. It's for your dog like the pets who who run wild in uh, in the back offices of Fleming and Curdy who are clearly not assistance dogs in any ways. They, they require our assistance rather than giving us assistance. Um, but... Uh, 
thank you very much. Uh, and uh, and and um, you could use that Able Act money for that kind of pet care as well. But one of the big misunderstandings people have is there's nobody in Medicaid or Social Security looking over your shoulder, judging whether or not you have used the money wisely. If you use it badly, if you don't use it for qualified disability expenses, the only penalty is you could conceivably owe a very small amount in income taxes. That's all. Not that you lose your benefits. Um, and, and so that's a confusing thing to people. That's not the way government programs usually work. So people who are on public assistance programs are so used to having to justify everything they do and feel like the government's watching every move that, that this is kind of a hard shift for them to make. The ABLE Act accounts are wonderful for another thing, Elizabeth. They really help, and you've mentioned this and alluded to it as well, but they really help create a sense of autonomy. If you have been on SSI for years, you know that you can't have more than $2,000 in available resources. How could you ever save money for a car or for a trip or for some future expense if $2,000 is the limit? Well, now suddenly you can have up to $100,000 in your ABLE Act account. Now, it's hard to get there at seventeen dollars or $16,000 a year, but you can have a pretty sizable savings amount, and you, the beneficiary, could be in control of it. You could have essentially a checkbook for your ABLE Act account. Uh, what a terrific uh, increase in your, in your autonomy and your ability to manage your own life. And Robert, can you talk a, a moment about some of the rules related to somebody putting income that he or she may have received from, let's just say, a very part-time job into an ABLE account? So there, first of all, if you had a little bit of income and you were getting over the $2,000 limit, um, but your income wasn't enough to knock you off of SSI, for instance, or if you were on SSD and your income was not a problem, but, uh, but your $2,000 limit for Medicaid was a problem, you can put the income into an ABLE Act account without any problem, up to that sixteen dollars or $17,000 a year. However, if you're employed in a, in a place that doesn't cover you in their retirement plan, you can put more than that in. The rules are a little bit complicated, but the amount you can put in goes up. It doesn't quite double, but it goes up by a significant amount. Now, that might not be the right thing for you to do, and you need to talk to somebody and make sure it makes sense, but you could actually um, put a pretty sizable amount of money in your ABLE Act account. I think that's so cool, Robert. I think that when we when we really focus on the autonomy issue is is important. And I think that has been proven to be the real benefit of the ABLE Act accounts is the the increase in autonomy and the and the sense of uh, of some authority over your own savings and 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 pardon the expression, but an investment in your own future. Um, we're a big fan. We are big fans. We are not just a big fan. The organization is a big fan, and you and I are individually big fans of the ABLE Act account uh, as, a, as, an, as an adjunct to, not a replacement for, but a real adjunct to the special needs trusts that we so often advocate for. So feel free to talk to us when you come in to meet with us about the ABLE Act account and how it might work. We are very quick to say when it's not the best choice for you, and it often is not. 
but it often is a terrific um, a method for increasing autonomy and solving those those individual problems that people have. Well, you've been listening to me rant on about the Able Act account. I'm Robert Fleming. I'm one of the partners at the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. My very indulgent partner, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, has let me rant on and contributed her own parts of the rant from time to time. We do that on topics that we are passionate about once a week in a program, a podcast we call Elder Law Issues. Oh, that's what you're listening to. And, uh, and we will be back next week with our per- peculiar rants about other elements of things that affect elders and those with disabilities. Thanks for joining us.